0: Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength.
1: Well, that's our desire, isn't it, this morning? To let Christ be magnified in us. We're coming to the end of our study in Philippians. I hope that you've enjoyed it. It's been good for me. It's been challenging. Especially last week. Did you notice what Paul said in verse 4 of chapter 4? He says, Be anxious for nothing. Rejoice always. I wish he hadn't said always. (laughs) Because there are certain situations that are right down difficult. It's hard to be anxious for nothing. I was challenged five minutes after leaving the service last week. Were you? I had a plan. And my plan was to go to a restaurant, order some takeout food so that we could have lunch with John Harrison, our visiting global worker. I had already planned for it. I had called ahead, I had made my order, and that was on Friday afternoon. So I had actually the slip of my order in my hand as I went into the restaurant. And as I showed it to them, I'd like to pick up my order. They looked at me with this blank look in their face. We never got the order. Now, this is 15 minutes before the lunch was supposed to start. I looked at them, obviously anxious. <laughs> what happened? Why didn't you get the order? Have you ever been there? Something goes wrong with our plan. Something is amiss. And now we have to adjust. Those adjustments can bring instant anxiety and yet paul says be anxious for nothing how do you do that well he goes on and i don't want to repeat all of what pastor mike preached last week but he says take your request to the lord register your complaint with him not the persons that's causing you the anxiety well i have to admit i didn't do so well I failed that test. But that's not the end of the story. God gave me the opportunity to adjust a little bit slower than what I think he wanted me to. But if you want the rest of the story, see me afterwards. (laughs) Today, we're going to continue our study, and Paul applies that idea of being anxious for nothing to the way that we handle our finances. That's another place where anxiety can be very apparent. How are you doing with what God has given you? Well the Apostle Paul had many opportunities to be anxious, and yet he said in verse 10 of our passage right now, and he says, "I rejoiced greatly in the Lord." See, he had just received a gift from the Philippian believers. He had not asked for it. He had not planned for it. But they knew his need, and the Lord revealed to them that they needed to send that gift. We don't know all the details where they had planned ahead, where they told him in advance. But anyway, the gift came to him, and now he's responding. That's the context of our passage today. And Paul's going to reveal to us at least three keys to contentment that anxious free living that's necessary so that we can rejoice in all things, always. So let's look at the first one. Contentment produces or forms the foundation for rejoicing in what the Lord provides. Contentment is necessary for rejoicing. If you are anxious, there's no way you're going to rejoice You're thinking about the problems that are before you. You're trying to figure out how to adjust, how to make it work, your plan or whatever plan is coming to your mind. But Paul, being in his situation, realized that there was more to his equation than just what he had in his hands. He probably had many times that he didn't have money for lunch or for the coming week. The opportunities to be in want were many because he did not have, like we do today, commit ourselves to supporting those workers around the world that we send out. They know know before they leave wherever they're going that they have enough financial need for that period of time that they're going to be working. Paul did not operate that way. He had a day-to-day necessity. Either he received help from the people around him but that were traveling with him, or he personally worked. That's how he sustained himself. But Paul says very clearly, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. So really, the, the secret that he's describing here is not depending upon the Philippians, although he's grateful for that. His ultimate rest And assurance of his needs being met was with Jesus Christ, personally with him. And if he was passing through a time of want, he could ask, and the Lord would respond as he needed, as the Lord directed. And that's exactly what Paul is putting his confidence in. Now, he's also relaying to the Philippians that he's glad that they sent their their note or their, their gift But he didn't want them to to feel like they were the ones who were providing all that he needed. He was going to base his confidence based upon what Jesus Christ was giving to him. That's the first point, the first secret to contentment. Not what we can amass for ourselves financially, but what Jesus can give to us, no matter what the situation Now he goes on and he describes that sometimes the anxiety comes from want, but it also comes from having too much. Who would like to have too much to be anxious about? I think we could all be in that situation, but it really is anxiety when we have too much. When we put our confidence in what we have around us, what we've provided, what we've worked for, and the message of the the day is, do you have enough until... You retire, and through those retirement years, it's easy to become anxious even when you have too much for the daily need because we're putting our confidence only in that. Well, Paul didn't have that problem. He says that he was very confident that the Lord would provide whether he had little or whether he had much. The second key to contentment we'll see here in verse 10. But it says that contentment must be learned. That's the second key to contentment. It's something that we have to learn. It's not given to us. We're not naturally inclined to be content. If you're a parent this morning, you know very well that contentment is not the atmosphere of your home if you have children. I've had children, and I have grandchildren and I hear all the time complaints. He took what's mine. He didn't ask for it. What's wrong with our situation? Our, our tendency and our go-to response usually is, Lord, I'm not satisfied with what I see in front of me, what I'm experiencing. And Paul was telling them, this is a lesson that we have to learn. He says here that I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance. I know that it is in the need. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. The school of learning to be content is not an easy school, but we are all in it. The Lord wants us to become contented followers of Jesus. He wants us to look to him for all that we ultimately need and even to resolve the situations that come up unexpected. He wants us to go to him. He wants us to be anxious for nothing. Boy, that is a tough one. But he's the one who can provide it. Paul says that I have learned it. How did he learn it? By having situations of anxiety. (laughs) To having situations come that he wasn't prepared for. To respond sometimes with short words or with frustration or with even anger. We've all had those situations. Someone cutting into our line of traffic unexpectedly. Have you had that this week? Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you've had situations financially that you weren't prepared for. An expense that you weren't planning for. All of those things are the school of learning. James says it this way, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the trials, when they are responded to with the Lord's direction and help and resource, we can have endurance. That's the mark that we're learning. When we don't respond as our flesh would want to, but we respond in confidence the Lord's going to give us what we need at that moment. How are you doing in your schoolwork with anxiety? We need help with that. Every one of us do. And today and this week, we have the opportunity to reflect and to look on the goodness of our God who is ready at any moment to come to our assistance to direct us through those anxiety moments. He wants to be there. He wants to be our resource. The third key that I see here to contentment is in the last few verses. He says, contentment comes through knowing Jesus and receiving his power for living. Do you see how Paul finished in verse 13? He says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. He didn't say, I can do all things because I have supporters like the Philippians. Or I have this resource or that resource. He didn't call upon resources other than Jesus Christ himself. That, my friends, is the key to contentment and the foundation to be able to live a life of rejoicing. You have to personally focus your attention moment by moment on what Jesus can give you. And when there is lack, when you're confused, when you're anxious, you call upon him, his resources, and he wants to provide according to his need. Now, I want you to know that this is not an easy process. There will be times when you will be tested beyond your capabilities. Paul even had those opportunities. He said in 2 Corinthians that he had a thorn in the flesh Definitely a challenge for his life to live and to to serve and to minister. And he said, I prayed three times that the Lord would take it away. I can't think of a more interactive response to anxiety than that. He called out to the Lord. He was doing the process that he's described here in Philippians. But he says the Lord was silent. He did not take it away. But how did God respond? Jesus said, my grace is sufficient. He gave Paul the ability to live even with a thorn that was causing him discomfort in some fashion. And he he placed his confidence not on his ability to eliminate the thorn, but on what God's power was for him to overcome it day by day. That is the key to contentment. Jesus Christ wants to be all that we need, and we call out to him. We ask for him everything, every day. The conclusion to this passage is that Jesus is the secret to contentment, who empowers us to be thankful with little or much. Let's pray. Father, we need you in the day-to-day moments of life. We need you to be our focus. We need you to be the one present as you promise to be near to those who call out to you. Give us that kind of response instead of anxiety. Give us contentment, Father, because we're trusting in you and what you provide. And may you be glorified when we can respond with thanksgiving And rejoicing in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account.
2: There's a classic saying in public speaking that you make sure that the first thing that you say and the last thing that you say are the, the strongest, right? Because the beginning and the end are what people remember, and the middle is the part that's most likely to be uh, forgotten. I think that might be why they're having the pastoral resident uh, preach the middle sermonette. <laughs> Safe place to test them out. In case I botch you, you'll forget. <laughs> no, not really, not really. In fact... Um, My hope is that God really does use this time to shape us and form us into joyfully generous people, and it is such an honor to uh, open God's word with you. So let's dive in. As uh, Pastor Dan explained, Paul has just expressed that his contentment isn't dependent upon the generosity, the giving of the Philippians. No, it's dependent upon God. And with that caveat in place, he returns to commending the Philippians for their generosity. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is in verse 14. He does not merely say, It was good of you to give to me in my troubles. No, he says, It was good of you to share in my troubles. Or as the CSB helpfully puts it, partnering with me in my hardship. You see, this Greek word that the NIV translates as share is uh, from the koinonia family of words in Greek, or koinoneo in the verb form. And Paul has used these uh, words throughout the letter. In chapter 1, he, he uh, uses them to describe their partnership with him in the gospel and their partnership with him in grace and their partnership with him in the Spirit. And now he says that they are actually Partnered with him in his affliction. Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians don't see themselves as distant or disconnected patrons. Instead, he wants them to know that in the same way that they're uh, partners with him in the benefits of the gospel, they are also partners with him in the mission of the gospel, and even through their prayers and sacrificial giving, partners with him in his suffering for the sake of the gospel. I think this is an important point because sometimes we can see uh, global workers, overseas missionaries as 1st rank Christians and those who stay behind and support through prayer and giving as second-rank. And while uh, many overseas missionaries do make exceptional sacrifices, we must also see those who give financial assistance as partners who suffer and sacrifice alongside those who go because both goers and senders are necessary for the spread of the gospel. So we should ask ourselves, are we praying for those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel? Are we considering how we might financially support some of those who are sacrificing to spread the good news? These are good questions to consider, but we gotta move on, because I'm on the clock, and I haven't been here long enough to go over time, so let's look at verses 15 and 16. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is is he's commending the Philippians for the uniqueness of their giving as well as the immediacy of their giving. So in verse 15, Paul states that when he left the region of Macedonia, the Philippians were the only church that shared with him in giving and receiving. It would be like if Paul said to us, Grace Polaris Church, after I shared the gospel with you and I was making my way out of Ohio, you were the only church That shared with me in giving and receiving. And then in verse 16, Paul highlights the immediacy of the Philippians giving. He says, Even when I was in Thessalonica, you gave to me more than once. Again, this would be like Paul saying to us, Grace Polaris, not only were you the only church you gave to me when I was uh, making my way out of Ohio, but you were already giving to me when I stopped briefly in Dayton on the way out. The point I wanna make here is this, as Paul recounts the history of the Philippians' generosity, he is communicating to them that he has not forgotten their partnership. Now he doesn't flatter them, Uh, just to receive more. He always gives God the ultimate glory. And like uh, Pastor Dan just shared, he's careful to avoid uh, any impression that he's somehow more dependent upon them than he is on God. But nevertheless, he's determined to communicate to the Philippians how much God has blessed him through their relationship. So again, we should ask ourselves, are we quick to remember and mention to those around us how God has blessed Us through them, or do we forget? And when we do express gratitude, is it uh, in order to flatter in hopes of receiving something more from them, or is it to glorify God? More good questions to ponder. Let's move on to verse 17, where Paul says the most remarkable thing. He says, "Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account." This is a crazy thing to say. Like, it's really easy to kind of just like zoom past this and not think about what he's actually saying. But imagine if this Christmas you gave someone a present and they said to you, Wow, thanks for the gift, um, but I don't even care about the gift. I'm just so happy that, that you're going to be blessed by giving it to me. <laughs> but like, that's why we don't invite crazy Uncle Bob to the Christmas parties. But the thing is, is that we can be confident that Paul means it. Paul is more concerned about the good of the giver than he is about the gift. He's expressed throughout the letter how ardently he cares for the Philippians, for their spiritual maturity, for their spiritual blessing. And so we we need to take Paul at face value here. And when we do, we unearth a precious truth. And I think it's one that you and I need to hear, because if you're anything like me, when you consider partnering with uh, the church or through organizations or with people uh, in giving, a million excuses come to mind. For me, um, I'm kind of like the king. I think I'm just, I'm fresh out of college, still working on uh, building a financial base, I'm waiting for my Bitcoin to take off, (laughs) then I'll give, I got student loans, it's just not the right time. And I think our tendency to do that stems from the fact that we view giving as important and good, but ultimately kind of a loss for ourselves. And it makes sense. It's like, well, when I give money, it's no longer available to me. It's not in my bank account anymore, right? When I give time to something, I I can't wind back the clock. It's no longer available to me. So it's good to be generous, but it's, it's a loss to me. Not in Paul's eyes. In fact, Paul is excited that the Philippians are giving precisely because it's for their own benefit. Because he knows that giving is ultimately a net gain for the giver. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that as the Philippians' generosity enables the, the spread of the gospel, the winning of worshipers of Christ, and the edification of the church, that fruit isn't merely credited to Paul God credits it to the Philippian spiritual account. And they will surely be rewarded on the last day. In light of uh, Paul's sort of financial terminology here, one commentator describes it like this. The picture painted by the accounting metaphor is of compound interest that accumulates all the time until the last day. The apostle has employed this commercial language to show that he has his heart set on an ongoing permanent gain for the Philippians in the spiritual realm. Surmise reminds me of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul is saying to the Philippians, I'm grateful for the gift. But what excites me most is that through your generosity to the cause of the gospel, you are storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven, the kind of treasure that lasts forever. You have made such an excellent investment in your own eternal joy. Now, it's not a question of earning heaven. Paul would shudder at the thought, it's only by grace only by recognizing our sin for what it is and clinging to the cross of Jesus that will be with our Savior forever. But the Bible is clear that generosity and obedience now that stem from faith in love have a positive effect on our experience in heaven. And that positive effect is often described as rewards or treasure. And it's confusing because it's like, I don't think I'll care about a Ferrari when I'm face to face with Jesus. And I think that's I think that's true. I don't think we will care about a Ferrari when we're face-to-face with Jesus. So perhaps heavenly treasure or rewards will be a greater capacity to, to glorify Christ in heaven through our generosity there or through greater responsibility in heaven or, or through just the joy of laying down all our rewards at the foot of the throne of God like the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4. I'm not sure. This I do know. I know there'll be no envy in heaven I know there'll be no pride in heaven. We'll all be perfected by Christ's love and every single person will experience fullness of joy before the face of their Savior. They will be happy in Christ to their fullest possible capacity. Everyone's cup will overflow, but perhaps, and this is what I would suggest, heavenly rewards have a bearing on the size of the cup. Perhaps they will enlarge our very capacity to enjoy Christ. And if that's so, let's strive at it after it. Let's, let's be generous because we are deeply concerned, because we are heartbroken over the suffering in the world, and especially those who are suffering and don't have the hope of Christ. And let's be generous because of the present joy of seeing the gospel bearing fruit in people's lives. But let's also be generous Because in God's economy, it's for our ultimate good. And we will not regret any generosity born out of faith and love if it will forever increase our capacity to enjoy our Savior. And when we give like that, we are reflecting Jesus, who didn't count, remember, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He took on flesh and gave us his very self, his very life, and he did it for the joy that was set before him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we need your help. Thank you, thank you for how generous you have been to us. Lord, may we reflect your son Jesus by being joyfully generous people. Please give us uh, an eternal outlook, spiritual lenses that that view the world the way you view it. God, make us more like your son. Thank you so much for how you have blessed us. Please make us a blessing to others. Amen.
0: Philippians chapter 4, verses 18 to 23. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.
3: Well, thanks for the extra pressure, Lucas. Going last, he thought you were removing pressure from yourself, but you were putting it on me, but that's okay. I've got the throwaway passages of the the section here. The greetings and a little bit more where normally you just skip over that, right? You finish your, your reading, and you're like, oh, greetings. Yep, he adds all these greetings at the end. <laughs> but let's see if we can make something more of it than just being, just being a throwaway passage. In the matter of giving and receiving, this is actually Paul's receipt back to the Philippians and not one of those throwaway receipts where you just find them piling up in your car on the passenger side. But it's so much more than a transactional receipt. All throughout the letter to Philippians to the Philippians, Paul has been overflowing with joy for them and for their partnership in the gospel. He's found a way to be content. He's, he's kind of revelled in their generosity, and then he is so joyful and overflowing for their partnership. Imagine Paul imprisoned and feeling disconnected from those that he loves so dearly. And then a surprise visitor arrives from those very people with a gift, a gift that not only supplies his needs, but gives him more than enough. That joy would overflow and would be hard to contain. And Paul did not contain that as he wrote throughout the letter to the church at Philippi with his joy overflowing. The partnership that they shared could not be thwarted by distance or by his imprisonment. And so as Paul returns this receipt to them, he encourages them with this Old Testament language of sacrifices. He says, I've received the full payment. I've had more than enough. I'm amply supplied. I'm content in that now that I've received the gift. But they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice that is pleasing to God. This Old Testament language of sacrifices, they're financial sacrifices brought the pleasing aroma of a smoking brisket that's rising up to heaven. When you walk into one of those places that's smoking some meat, you know the smell and this sacrificial, pleasing aroma that rises up is good. And the Old Testament sacrificial system may be a thing of the past, and for that I'm grateful. But making sacrifices still should be a marker of maturity in Christ. Paul used the same language in Romans chapter 12 when he said, therefore, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The same sacrificial language is used there, forgiving our whole bodies. The writer of Hebrews echoes this sacrificial language in chapter 13 when he says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices god is pleased you see paul's needs were fully met more than met and as we've heard from pastor dan paul was content he learned what it meant to be content in every any and every situation but sacrificial giving is rarely a one-way thing when we offer sacrifices of worship through our bodies, through our lips, and our giving, God will meet our needs. You cannot outgive God. He says, God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise to embrace. Paul's God, our God, is, is willing to meet our needs. If you had a friend who was willing to meet your needs, that would be a true friend. But what if they were willing but unable to meet your needs? Their kindness wouldn't be of much use to you in your situation of need. They were willing, but they just had nothing. That'd be great, but wouldn't be helpful. So what if you had a friend then that had an abundance of resources to meet your needs? This would be the friend that you would call in your moment of desperation. And you would reach out to that friend. But what if this friend was unwilling to, meet, to, help your, to help you and to meet your needs? Their wealth and their resources would be useless to you. But here, Paul describes a God who is not only willing, but he is able. He will meet your needs, and he is able to meet your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Can you just soak that in for a minute? We have a God who is both willing and able to meet our needs. If that doesn't lead us to be content, if that doesn't lead us to be generous, and if that doesn't lead us to be partners in others, that is God's grace at work in our lives. We have a great God who is both willing and able and praises the proper response. When God is generous, when God's people are generous, worship is the response, and Paul has that response at the end of that verse 20. Now the bonds of partnership are strong here, and this is made evident through the greetings that Paul expresses to the recipients of his letter. Even in prison, Paul did not live an isolated life. That's a hard thing to do, but he did it well. He had every excuse to stop living his life on mission. He had every excuse to hunker down and turn inward and think, woe is me. He could have retired. He could have believed he had done enough. We'll let others take care of it now. Yet he was in community with others. Even while he was in prison, he still wanted to declare God's goodness in Christ to the next generation. And so he sends these greetings and it's a picture that we get to see and we get to eavesdrop on somebody else's letter To see the affection that he had for these people, to see the partnership that they had together through the grace of God. And so he says, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. There are other translations that say, greet every saint. God's people is probably a really good translation because we could get hung up on the saint word. We think, well, I'm not a saint. I don't have a church named after me, or there's not relics with my face on them or a statue of me. We think that saint is only for superhero Christians. And that's not true at all. Saint is anyone who is in Christ. And Paul uses this term over and over and over throughout his letter as a term for God's people. He uses it some 40 times in all of his letters. We are saints if you are in Christ. And so he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And he's expressing his affection for the saints by requesting that every saint be greeted. This isn't just a blanket greeting. Hey, so and so, say hello to all of you. He says, No, greet every saint. Like, make it personal, individually. I want them to know affectionately that I care for them. It's an individual, each and every saint. And then he, then he says, The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. So those, I want you from me to greet every person. But the brothers and sisters, they also say hello. They also want the greetings sent. Those with me are sending greetings. They are the fellow workers in the gospel, those partners of Paul who have served him well. We know from the beginning of this letter that Timothy was there. Some scholars have surmised that possibly Luke and Mark, the gospel writers, were there with him, and maybe many other notable people can picture almost Paul in the room finishing up the letter and looking around, and they're like, hey, say hi for me too. Hey, say hello for me. I want, And he's like, okay. All of my partners in the gospel right here with me, they send greetings as well. And then he broadens it a little bit and says, all God's people here send you greetings. From all of God's people. Yes, there are believers in Jesus living in Rome. There are followers of Jesus in the capital city. There are followers of Jesus in the dark places of the world the places that have control of government or that control your lives or make things miserable, guess what? In this place, there are lovers of God. He reminds them, you have brothers and sisters in Christ in this imperial city who know about you and who are with you in the gospel through them, through the gospel. But wait, there's more. Because it's not just all God's people send you greetings. He says, especially those from Caesar's household. Especially those from Caesar's household. Oh, I love this part. Yes, even in enemy territory, God's people are moving and reaching the lost. God has placed people in Caesar's household who are lovers of God, who are followers of Jesus. And this is the gospel-motivated giving of God's people at work, even among the most unlikely people. The church of Philippi, supplied Paul's ministry needs to overflowing. And the generosity, he's saying to them, the generosity that you have shown, it's paying off because people in Caesar's household know Jesus now. There are palace guards, there are cooks in the kitchen, there are servants of Caesar and many others who know Jesus because of you and your generosity. This is the joy of the saints to hear of others walking in the truth of Jesus as a direct result of their sacrifices. Now, the Philippian church would have had a very unique interest in this news, not only because of their giving, but because they were a Roman colony. Maybe there were some retired folks living in Philippi who used to live in Rome. Maybe, maybe they had some family back home, and when they get that report from back home, there's thankfulness, there's joy to know that people are coming to Christ and that probably fueled their prayers even more. I'm going to keep praying for them. I didn't hear about my family members, so I'm going to keep praying that the gospel will reach them, but I know it's close, because it's even in Caesar's household. This is a reminder that the gospel is advancing despite Paul's imprisonment. And more accurately, as Paul said in chapter 1, because of his imprisonment, the, the gospel is going forward. Paul demonstrates through the grace of their partnership that an affectionate gospel is an effective gospel. The gifts and the gratitude that they shared in relationship made the gospel effective. When, when they serve together and you know people and you care about them deeply and you have an affection for them and then you give as a result of that because you wanna see God use them in incredible ways, that's an affectionate gospel that then makes the gospel of Jesus Christ even more effective. He closes off the letter in verse 23. Kind of the way he begins the whole letter, with grace. This letter begins with grace and it ends with grace. In fact, all throughout the letter, you can trace the grace that overflows from God through Paul. Let's look back over where we've been and, and what we've seen. In chapter one, in the first few verses, he begins, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, And then he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is grace, and he ends it with grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. But just that beginning continues on in verse six. He says that the grace to complete the good work that was started. He doesn't name grace there, but that is a grace that God is giving us that he will continue the work because grace is something we don't deserve to complete the work that was started. In verse seven, he says that you share in God's grace with me. These people, this church, those who love him, that have supported him, who he has an affection with and for, they share in God's grace. They're partners in the gospel. They're partakers of the gospel. In verse 23, grace is to be promised. We get the grace that is promised promised—an eternity with Christ that he will be with Christ. The grace to be partners in suffering. Verse 29 says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer. Granted, you have been graced to suffer. That's not something we think about as a grace, but it is a grace because it teaches us and it helps us lean on him even more. Grace to be partners in suffering. You've been graced to be able to show grace to others in the beginning of chapter two. If you have any encouragement for being in Christ, then show that same encouragement to others. You have been graced so that others can be graced. And then we get grace provided through Jesus in the middle of chapter two, the very picture of the humble servant who laid it all aside in order to provide grace for us. And then in chapter three, Paul goes on about all of his accomplishments and the things that he considers a loss. And then he says, He says, that it is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He has given righteousness, a right standing, the grace to be imputed righteousness, which is is available to us as well. The grace to be given heavenly citizenship in verse 20 of chapter three. The grace then in chapter four of a listening father who is willing, who he gives us peace. And then that same father is willing and he's able to meet our needs. We have the grace of a God who takes our little and makes it a lot, but not for our own good, but for the sake of others. In our contentment, in our generosity, through our partnership, we have been graced. God's grace overflows from a God who is willing and able and through people, and we get to be partners of that grace. And we have opportunity at every turn to share that grace that we've been given with others. Let's pray. God, thanks. So grateful for this grace that comes through Jesus. I'm so grateful that we have this time of year where we can celebrate and and focus on gratitude and thankfulness. But that is a grace that continues every day through Jesus. We're grateful. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to be content in any and every situation to be generous and to be generous partners in the gospel. Thanks for the example of Paul. Thanks for the people that you are saving and working through gifts and sacrifices that we make every day. Thanks for the sacrifice you've made for us, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.